Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Vanessa Dunn-Guyton, and I am the proud founder and executive director of Hush No More. Hush No More supports survivors when they're ready to come forward to share their story, when they are ready to find resources, or just need somebody to listen to. That is what we do. We also provide training in our communities to different churches, youth groups, organizations that can't normally afford training on what we call the Hush topic, sexual assault, domestic violence, sex trafficking, child sexual abuse, incest, all of those hard topics that are happening in our families, happening in our communities, but we are not really learning enough about them. I believe that awareness plus knowledge equals prevention. So how can I raise awareness, provide you the knowledge so we can ensure that your families are protected? So this is the goal for tonight. Tonight, I have an amazing guest. We are going to talk about that story that nobody wants to hear. Welcome, Jenna. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> I am so honored that you joined us and you're going to talk about your story that people really don't want to hear about. A lot of times what we go through, our trauma, we don't have anyone to talk to or they don't really understand. So that's the goal tonight is trying to get people to understand from your perspective. So tell me a little bit about Jenna McKay. Um, so I am a survivor of sex trafficking and I now, um, speak and share my story, um, as well as train law enforcement, hospital staff, and other first responders, how to identify victims of labor trafficking and sex trafficking and how to respond to them. Um, and I also have a foundation, the Jenna McKay foundation, um, in the Yuba Sutter area, um, just North of Sacramento, California. And we, um, really just connect uh, victims to the resources they need and get them support they need, um, you know, into therapy. Uh, we provide horse therapy. Um, we'll help them get back into school, work, um, just whatever their situation is. Um, we'll help provide that. I love it. So did you create the Jenna McKay Foundation based on your own personal trauma? Yes. When I got away from my trafficking experience, I had no one. No one identified me. No one was providing any support to me. And it was it would be six years before I reached out for help and finally got the resources that I that I needed. Um, so life was really hard for those six years and I struggled a lot and that didn't need to happen. So I just wanted to be the person that I needed. Um when I was 18 and, um, you know, I needed an advocate and I needed law enforcement. I needed a, to go to the hospital. I needed therapy and I needed somebody to show me how to navigate through life. Hey, how do I get back into school? How do I get a job? How do I pay bills? Like, how do I live in society? Yeah. And you don't even think about that when you're young, you never had that experience. Like there was nobody teaching you that, so you missed it. So being able to come back and capture those individuals or those years of your life is really yeah. important. So right. how did you get into sex trafficking? How did that happen? Yeah, um, well, I wasn't a kid that you might picture to become a victim of trafficking. I grew up in Southern California in a good neighborhood. I went to a private Christian school. Um, at the age of 12, I started playing competitive volleyball and it was really with the goal to um, uh, follow in one of my big sister's footsteps and uh, get a scholarship. Um, I had a weight trainer. You know, I had private lessons. I was playing club and varsity. Really no interest in partying or boys, anything like that. I was really focused. 
Um, and then my trafficker, the man that would become my trafficker, he also went to the same school and he also wasn't somebody who you would picture to become involved in trafficking and be a trafficker. He, you know, um, had a stepdad that was a pastor and a chief in the Navy and his mom was a successful business owner. They were involved in the community. And, um, so we, you know, we met in high school. He graduated a year before me. And my senior year, I was really struggling. My parents, my sisters were already off at college and my parents were separating and school and, um, you know, volleyball and everything seemed overwhelming. I felt very alone and he was already living off on his own. And he really just said, well, why don't you just quit all that and come live with me? And long story short, you know, he dangled that carrot in front of me and I took it. And I had no idea the world that I was entering into. Um, and he wasn't already a trafficker that preyed on me. You know, it's something he learned through the other criminal activity he was involved in. And he learned that he could advertise me. He married me um, and he advertised me online and um, sold me out of our apartment in Southern California. Um, but I really wanted to share too that part where I'm leaving high school you know, this is where teachers and uh, coaches and principals, anybody at a school really need to pay attention to these kids because it's it really helped kind of rebel me going towards him when they weren't reaching out to me. When I was like this, you know, kid that was getting good grades and headed to play college volleyball. Hey, we're proud of you, kid. Pat on the back. We're, we're supporting you. But once I started to turn away from that and go down a different path, where was everybody? And so I didn't really want to drop out of high school. I wanted to go play college volleyball, <laughs> but I was making these choices and I felt stuck and I couldn't get out of them. And I needed those adults in my life. I was 18, but I was still a kid and I needed their guidance. And that's where the prevention could have happened. Yeah. So when you were in high school, your senior year, were you still at the Christian High school, is that a Christian yes. high yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I want to point that out because it does not matter what kind of school you're at, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you're in a bad neighborhood and you're in a school like that or, you know, you have low funding at your school. You were at a very nice, prestigious school and this mm -hmm. happened to you. Right, yeah. When you decide to leave, did you know that he was involved in criminal activity? I saw it a little bit in high school. There was, I mean, there was even some abuse from him in our dating relationship. Um, and I saw, you know, he introduced me to drinking and partying in that crowd. Um, but I didn't see the extent of it until I had dropped out and moved in with him. And it just got worse and worse. Um, I thought he was cool. Led to the trafficking. Was it more of like, you know, you think somebody cool, they're doing this, they're drinking, he's he's already out of high school. So did you look at him from that perspective? You know, I don't think I ever, I, you know, I don't, it's hard to think about what I was thinking in that moment. I just remember feeling more stuck. I felt like there's no going back now. So now this, whatever this life is with him is what I'm stuck with. Um, I didn't think, oh, well. I made a bad choice. Let me go back and graduate and go play college volleyball. I thought that was over. And that's when, that's why I really needed those adults in my life, like steering me and saying, Hey, no, we'll help you figure this out. Um, 
And I, and I, I uh, you know, when I, even when he married me, I remember talking to him and his parents saying, I don't want to get married. And uh, he just was very good at manipulating the situation and was very abusive and controlling. And I just felt scared and stuck. And so I got married. Did your parents, how did, how did your parents feel about you getting married at such a young age? Yeah, they didn't, they didn't like the guy and they, I, nobody was, nobody from my side of the family, no friends of mine were there. It was um, a few of his family members. It was in a courthouse. It wasn't special, nothing like that. But did you love him? Um, Not real love. I thought I did. You thought you did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So at that age, we really don't know what real love is, but you mm -hmm. love him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's important to identify that a trafficker makes you feel safe. You know, they, they love on you. It's not always I'm grabbing you. I'm snatching you. It's the befriending. He was your friend. He was your confidant. He was there for you during a difficult time. Really. If your parents were separating, that was a very difficult time and your senior year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it wasn't, and even if he was doing something that was controlling or abusive, it's that typical behavior that abusers use, that go-to tactic of, uh, oh, well, let me make this up to you. Let me make you feel extra special. This will never happen again. And you know what? When you're really young at 18 and your brain's still developing and you've never been in any other kind of relationship, uh, didn't really get the best example of a healthy relationship growing up, you don't know any better. Did you know what teen dating violence was? Did they ever talk about unhealthy relationships in high school? You know, no, I, I mean, I, I know they taught, I remember them talking about what a good relationship might look like. Um, but I never heard the words domestic violence. I never definitely didn't hear about sex trafficking and um, the red flags, what to look for. So all these things that happened before I was trafficked, if I had been educated on them in high school, I very well could have gotten myself out of it before even being trafficked. Um, even if nobody stepped in to, you know, help me, I could have really seen something, something bad's about to happen with all these things that he's doing. Yeah. But when you don't know something, you don't know what it means. You don't know how to prevent it. You get caught. You get caught up in this cycle. That's why it's really important for us as parents to talk to our children for the schools to really do get involved. And to bring in programs so that we can make sure that our kids are knowledgeable. I think that is so important. So important. Yeah. So what once you got married, how did it start? Did he have a conversation um, with you? Yeah. So, you know, as I've gone into this work and learned about how traffickers get things started with their victims, the grooming process, you know. Sometimes there's a beating. Sometimes they sit there and say, this is what you're going to do. They show them how, all those things. I didn't have any of that. Um, I remember going to Las Vegas with him. And I remember being in this uh, souvenir shop on Fremont Street. And the, the walls were just the glass, you know, glass windows. And he was outside talking to this man that, you know, looked like somebody that might be in a gang or some kind of criminal, just I didn't get a good vibe about it. And I remember standing there watching them and they were laughing and talking. And it, I was like, why is he talking to that guy? And why do they act like they know each other? And I didn't really ask him any questions. I was already 
No, Jenna, your story was just getting good. <laughs> I'm hoping that you come back on. So for those of you who have not been with us long and joining us, Jenna is talking about how she became a sex trafficked victim. She actually started in high school her senior year and she married her trafficker. So it's really important for us to understand that our children are getting caught up in these programs that it's not like what it looks like on TV. It's not that hooded person. It's not that person that's saying, I'm going to grab you. I'm drugging you. It's not always that person. It was her boyfriend. It was a guy that she loved. It was a guy that she cared about. That's who her trafficker was. That person that she trusted. So I was just catching the audience up, General, like you had popped out. So you were Sorry. in Vegas. <laughs> I called you. I called you, bro. Okay. Can you hear me now? I can. I can. Okay. All right. Good. Um, so, yeah, where were we? Uh, in Vegas. Um, so, anyways, I saw him talking to that man, and things started to change. They started to, the abuse increase, you know. And this is where it's important to talk about domestic violence because I knew I wasn't in a healthy relationship. I knew I didn't like how it felt, the way he was treating me. But my idea of domestic violence was him beating me, right, and hitting me in physical contact. When things like taking my paychecks, uh, blocking me in a doorway, grabbing my hair, taking my car keys, taking my cell phone, all that stuff is forms of abuse, and um, then there was sexual abuse, too, even though we were married, right? So we've got to educate, even if though it's an uncomfortable conversation to have sometimes with teenagers and young adults, that these things are not okay. Um, and then not long after the Vegas trip, there was several trips to Tijuana, Mexico. And during one of these trips is when I was branded. And, um, you know, he had put a tattoo on me. Um, it was very forced. It was very traumatic. The tattoo artist, it was in the lobby of a club there in Tijuana. I remember saying no. I remember there being a paper towel put into my mouth. Um, and, you know, it was very forced. But I didn't realize that that was a branding, that, that he was preparing me um, to, be tra to traffic me. Um, and then when we got back from that trip, it wasn't long after that he advertised me online without me knowing. Like I said, there was no conversation of, hey, this is what we're going to do. I can make lots of money this way. So we were living in this apartment and I was used to strange men coming to our door because of all the criminal activity he was involved in. And, um, oops, sorry. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I was, so when this strange man came to our door, um, I didn't think anything of it, you know, and then he invited him in and things didn't feel right. And that was the first night that I was sold and raped. And after it happened, you know, this is kind of the part of the story where people might think, oh, well, I would have ran. Why didn't you just run out of that apartment? Why didn't you just call 911? Well, there was a lot that led up to that point and that he did on purpose to keep me from running. Um, he separated me from my family and support system and went to extreme lengths. So even though he, I was 15 minutes from home, 
15 minutes from my high school, uh, he went and got a restraining order against my dad. So my dad couldn't come anywhere near me. I didn't feel like I could call home or go home. Um, by this point, I had been arrested. And that experience with law enforcement, I remember him, the officer arresting me. And my trafficker was there. And he looked at him and said, why would you want to be with a girl like her? And that was it for me. That's all it took to make me feel shamed and embarrassed and not feel like I could ask for help. And when I was in the jail cell, I was crying. They sent a female police officer in to talk to me, which would have been a great opportunity to intervene and to prevent. But just with what that officer said to, that, to my trafficker, there was no way I was going to trust them and talk to them. And I remember sitting there thinking, gosh, if you guys only knew me, like just months before this, I was headed to play college ball and I would come from a good family and I got good grades at school and had nice friends, you know, and um, my self-esteem just kept plummeting after that. And so that first night, 911 crossed my mind, but I didn't feel like they would believe me or trust me. Like it felt like after that experience, they were on his side. Um, and I, you know, didn't know what my other options were halfway through my trafficking experience. He opened the front door to the apartment and said, leave Jenna, if you don't like it here, go. And I started to walk out and I stopped and I said, where? Because, and he knew what he was doing in that moment because I didn't know that I had other options. I didn't know there were safe places for me. I didn't know there were people that would help me. Um, so I felt very trapped in the marriage and in that trafficking situation. And I also didn't know what was happening to me. I knew I was being raped, but why are they handing him money? What does that mean? So, um, and I grew up with the same movies and TV shows as everybody else, right? Like Pretty Woman, that's prostitution. And that documentary on TV about that kid chained to the radiator in Asia, that's trafficking. So I'm not experiencing any of that. So what is this? And um, yeah, I felt very, very stuck and like I couldn't get out of it. I think it's important for you to share why you didn't leave. Because sometimes people say, well, why Why don't they leave? Why don't they get away? So they try to find a time to escape. But when your self-esteem is low, you feel like you can't go back to your parents. You know, you, you're not accessible to them anymore. What do you do? And this was your husband. This was somebody that was supposed to love you. Can you yeah. explain what's branding? For people that don't understand that. Yeah. So branding is um, it's when traffickers put a tattoo on their victims. You know, so often traffickers have more than one girl that um, he has under their control, under his control. And it sometimes is their name. It sometimes is a gang symbol. Um, it's sometimes, you know, like a money sign or a crown, things like that. And what I've seen mostly on girls is it'll be like on their neck. It'll be right here above their eyebrow, um, you know, different places on their body. Um, even in private areas, sometimes I've seen in medical trainings. And um, yeah, it's just another way to control and take ownership. If she tries to run away, another trafficker gets her. Oh, let me return her. It's it's really like like they did in slave times where they branded them. To know who owned you so and i think that's important for parents to understand the branding and to watch out for that because all kids are not with their trafficker full-time 
they do come, some do come home. And so I think that's important for you to recognize that when they start getting their tattoos. And that's a common thing now, tattoos. But it is a difference between branding and just a random tattoo. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So my next question for you is, through all of this, how did you escape? How did you get that courage? What was your defining moment to say, I'm, I'm leaving? Or how did you leave? Um, it was the last time that I was sold. Um, it was different um, in the sense that it was not in the apartment. This time he took me to a hotel room. And that scared me because in my mind, I was thinking, well, what does this mean? Why are we not doing it in the apartment anymore? Why is this happening at a hotel room? What is, what's the next step after this? Is he going to start taking me to other cities? Is he going to start taking me to another country? What, what's going to, how is he, is it going to keep escalating? And it was also, you know, all of the rapes were horrible, but this was the most horrific. It was the first time I experienced a beating. Um, it was all night. I was alone in this motel room with this man. He was clearly on drugs and um, I was still really young and innocent, but I didn't know that people could be raped the way that I was raped. Um, it was just the worst uh, night. And the next morning, the buyer left and my trafficker was waiting outside in the car. And there was a moment where I looked in the mirror and it's like, I couldn't even recognize myself anymore. And I started to cry. Um, I was very skinny I, you know, I had various stages of bruising. I had my branding, my hair was falling out. Um, and I was afraid for my life. I was afraid, well, am I going to keep surviving this? Is this really my life? Who is this girl? I didn't even see the high school athlete anymore. And I didn't really want to go back to my community. I was embarrassed. I was afraid what they would think of me. I was afraid if they would believe me. Um, there was a time when my weight trainer um, for volleyball. I was in the car with my trafficker. He was driving. We both came to a stoplight and I, my weight trainer pulled up next to us in the car next to me. And a lot of people might think, you know, after experiencing all this, well, why don't you yell out the window? Help, help me <laughs> look at me. And I slumped down and like hid myself. So he wouldn't see me because I was so embarrassed about the way that I looked. And that's not, you know, we know as advocates, that's not my shame to carry. That's my trafficker shame, but I was carrying it. And um, so it was not long after this last night that I was sold. I had a phone call with one of my big sisters and she did not know I was being trafficked. She knew all, the conversation was really about me getting away from him, though. And she said something. She said, you know, Jenna, you can always come home. And until she said that out loud to me, it did not occur to me that I could go home. So I slowly started to plan kind of my ex escape. Um, you know, I didn't graduate high school, so I wanted my GED. Um, I would meet up with my sixth grade teacher and she helped me. She helped me study to pass my GED, which getting that while being trafficked, it felt like I got my PhD. Like I couldn't believe that I did that while experiencing all this trauma. Um, and I, that was one of the things that gave me a little bit of confidence to get away from him. Um, and um, I met with, long story short, I met with his parents and my dad. And I asked to meet at his stepdad's church. I wanted to be in a safe place. And all I said to them really was he was growing and selling marijuana out of the apartment. 
And I didn't talk anything about the trafficking or the abuse or the trips that we were taking. And they thought that that was a valid reason to want a divorce. And I just thought, well, if you only knew. <laughs> and I moved back in with my dad. Um, I went to the hospital. Uh, it was an urgent care. And like I said, I was, I clearly looked like somebody had been through trauma. I had all the signs of somebody that had been trafficked and nobody was talking to me. Everyone was talking around me and it felt like they were assuming and judging and nobody was, I, all I needed in that moment was for them to create a safe place for me and to say, Hey Jenna, what happened to you? And somebody say, Hey, we can help you. These are the support. These are the resources we can give you. Right. Um, and nobody was giving that to me. And so it kind of stirred up that rebellion again in me of, well, if nobody cares, I guess I won't tell anybody. And I thought at that moment that I would go the rest of my life with not telling anybody. That was my plan. And I tried to um, move on with my life. I was self-destructive. I was promiscuous. I was trying drugs. I was drinking. I, I was every, everything to self-harm because I wasn't getting the therapy I needed. Um, but eventually I did, um, get, I got remarried. Um, we got stationed to Quantico Marine base in Virginia. And to me, that was my fresh start. Um, I was away from everything and thought I could make a new life for myself, but I was still experiencing PTSD and I had not yet talked about what really happened to me. So I, I want people to realize that you have freedom to kind of come and go a little bit. It's like you were able to go study for your GD. You had a car, you know, but he had that much control over you that you never left because of the control factor. Yeah, for sure. I, yeah, you would think that, oh, well, she did just leave. Why didn't she do that sooner? You know, and I've been, I've done speeches where afterwards somebody from the audience will come and ask me, you know, why didn't you just leave? And I said, well, I did. Why didn't I leave sooner? That's the whole psychology part behind it, right? That's so hard to understand. And I think it's it can be explained and people can go to trainings and you can go get a degree in it and learn all these things. But I don't know, unless you've survived it, that you can really understand. Um, because it's more than just having somebody, you know, lock you in a room or put chain you to something. It's the psychological hold and the fear that they instill in you. And traffickers are very good at it. He was very good at it. And see, your parents knew where you were because you were married. So it wasn't like somebody was looking for you, but they didn't know what was happening to you. Right. So we don't always tell our parents what is, what's going on. Right. So I think that's important. You did not tell your parents that you were being trafficked. You didn't tell them about all the abuse. You kept mm -hmm. that because of the embarrassment and shame. You know, you, you didn't share that with them. So they weren't mm -hmm. out looking for you. They knew. They knew exactly where you were. So another thing is um, Mary wanted to know about the hotel staff that they didn't know that you were being trafficked. It could call the cops or did they know and chose not to? I was so out of it that I'm not, I don't remember even seeing hotel staff that night. I remember just going straight from the car. Here's the key. Go to this room. I was in the room and then the next morning left the room and went straight back to the car. So I had no interaction with them. Um, you know, but the thing really is my apartment, there was no way that nobody didn't hear or see anything. 
I mean, it was suspicious. There was men coming and going all the time. Uh, I was not quiet. You know, during the rapes, I would scream and cry for help. I was, even when I was going around his family, we would put on this happy front, but I, my physical features were changing. I was crying all the time. I remember his mom asking him, why is Jenna okay? And, you know, um, and I would watch him manipulate his own family um, and just come up with these elaborate stories and like, they believed him. Um, yeah. So it's, it, that's why it's so important that communities are educated because I needed somebody in that apartment complex to say, something's not right here. Let me call 911. Let me call the human trafficking hotline. It's just, something's happening to this girl because reality is, you know, I could have died. There was a couple incidents that were very scary and um, I needed somebody to make that call for me by the grace of God, I'm here today. And I think it's the, the community's responsibility to report. And a lot of times we don't take that ownership. We'll say things like, it's not our business. You know, I'm going to stay out of it. But you really wanted somebody to call. You wanted somebody to call. Yeah, I really did. I really wanted help. I just couldn't ask for it. For parents, what do you think parents can do to help young girls and young boys, because it's also our boys, what can parents do? So, you know, the education piece, you know, we teach our kids, you know, stop, drop and roll. And what do we do in a fire? What do we do in an earthquake? Um, we talked to, to them about stranger danger. And I think it's important to talk about all those topics that I needed to hear, you know, at every age, really, you know, we do it differently depending on the age, but talking about the red flags, um, talking about what trafficking is, how it happens, talking about teen dating violence, all these things. But I think even more, especially now with technology and um, kids are at home and they're on technology a lot, the grooming process, because that's often how traffickers are um, trying to contact kids and predators are trying to contact them is through the internet, all different, all the different apps. So educating our kid on how they groom and what they say to you because they're sitting there thinking, Oh, they're saying all the things I want to hear and they make me feel special. And my mom and dad are mean. They grounded me. I don't want to be home. Mm, this sounds like a good idea to run away with him. But if we understand if our kids are educated on that, then they know, Oh, this doesn't feel right. They are coming off like they have my best intentions, but really they have other plans for me. And I need to tell an adult about this. We just had a case recently where the sister knew where her sister was and it was a trafficking case and she knew, but she didn't say anything. I think it's important for parents to talk to their children about secrets. If you have to keep it a secret, you probably should tell me. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, that's, for sure. that's, that's a good point. Secrets. Secrets are important to address in this situation because you kept a lot of things a secret. Yeah. And I did even after I got away from him for six years before, you know, it was in Virginia that I finally reached out for help. I had a breakdown and went to the hospital. But for six years, I suffered with post-traumatic stress disorder and trying to navigate life with all this anxiety and, um, you know, these flashbacks and these nightmares. And I kept it a secret, you know, even in a, in a new marriage and as a new mom, as a military wife, um, I just wanted to move on so bad and I couldn't. I was stuck in that as 18-year-old me. 
And to look at you, you wouldn't know that. There's no face, right? There's no face. There's no look. There's no race. There's no age. Well, there are kids, but it hits us all. It doesn't matter about how much money your parents make, what type of household you come from. It can happen to your child. Right. Absolutely. Um, Mary said, people do not understand the psychological prison that predators keep you in. They don't. And I think it's important. I love that you shared that it was the mental aspect that kept you there. It wasn't necessarily all the physical. It was a lot of mental. Yeah. Shakira said, this conversation is so important. Thank you for sharing. And I wish you both good health and energy. Thank you, Shakira. Thank you. Um, Lona, people also need to understand how dangerous it is to live in this situation. But when we try to escape the rate of danger and lethality is so high, we must assess it to see if it's safer to stay than go unless your plan is solid and foolproof. And honestly, you don't even know if your your um, plan is solid and foolproof. Sometimes you get a good plan, but there's still some risk in leaving. It's yeah, that's what they say. And, you know, in domestic violence relationships, leaving is the most dangerous part. Um, so, yeah, and we ask, and that's the thing too, you know, victim blaming when we asked victims or survivors, you know, wh why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you run? Why didn't you do this? I remember feeling very frustrated. And when I started speaking and sharing my story and hearing those questions, because in my brain, I was hearing you should have, and you didn't do this right. So this happened to you because you didn't call 911. And I felt so defensive. I'm like, if you only knew what it was like, and you know, me even talking about it isn't enough. Like, I feel like I, you know, I'm writing a book because I feel like it's so important. I think reading the details will help people understand better. Um, and that's not for the victim to feel. We shouldn't have to feel like we have to defend ourselves for a crime that was committed against us. That blame needs to go to the perpetrator, to the trafficker. And um, once we understand force, fraud, and coercion, and really what that looks like, then I feel like victim blaming kind of goes out the window because when you are experiencing the definition of trafficking, somebody forced to work or have sex through forced fraud and coercion and what that really entails, then we can understand, oh, this is why they made that choice. This is why they didn't run away first time, why they went back to it even. People don't understand. And I think it's important that you continue to share your story that you continue to raise awareness, to give an inside look of what it is for you mentally, for you physically. You know, you do 15 minutes away from home. This was yeah. happening in the same city, like right down the street. And so I know people are like, wow, I can't believe that she didn't leave. But it's easy to judge. It's easier to make those assumptions and to say that. So I hope people really get a better understanding from your story. Yeah, me too. You said you are one brave lady. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences. Andrea said the same thing, that you are very brave, and thank you. Thank you. Everyone wants to know, do you work with boys and girls, men and women, who were sexually assaulted by their own parents from infant time? Do you work with any of them? Um, so I've, a lot of times, the girls that um, have been sent my way, I get a lot of calls of high-risk youth. Um, you know, before they're even trafficked and then after the fact. And um, I am always happy to work with a boy or a man of labor or sex trafficking. I haven't had that happen yet um, here in my community. 
Um, and we're happy to connect them with the resources that they need that would be a good uh, fit for them. Um, but definitely a lot of times in their past, there's been some kind of trauma, whether it's sexual abuse, child abuse, um, you know, isolation, uh, being a, a not taken care of, you know, things like that, um, that they, yeah, there's a lot of that in the past from what I've seen, but not everybody, you know, and I didn't have it directly from me, but I saw it from my dad to my mom and uh, that created a huge vulnerability for me. Trauma oftentimes repeats itself in some type of other shape or form. And so it's important to address all the trauma that you experienced and get that healing. What did your healing look like? What does that journey look like for Jenna? Yeah, so that's just my favorite part because um, mine was really long. Um, so I, you know, when I was in Virginia, it was two years after my son was born. Um, by this point, I had found out my trafficker had died. I didn't feel like I could move past this. I was still stuck in the past. I was experiencing PTSD and I really just, it led to a breakdown. I went to the hospital and this is kind of a long story, so I'll make it short. <laughs> uh, I ended up into a psych psychiatric hospital. And right when I walked in, it was as, as scary as I imagined. So my thought process was do whatever you have to do to get out. So say what you have to say, go to every therapy, write it down, do what they say, what I thought they wanted to say. And sure enough, it worked. I met with a psychiatrist after three days of being there. He sent me home and back, to, you know, I would go to outpatient therapy and I had never been on any kind of medication. He sent me home with anxiety and depression medicine. And even though I wasn't speaking about my trafficking experience, I never, I still hadn't said it out loud. All that trauma that I stuffed down and blocked out was coming up. So I was having more nightmares. I was having more panic attacks and in the midst of a nightmare, I walked downstairs one night and I overdosed, which took me back to so the emergency room and then back to inpatient care. And there was this woman in the hospital who was much older than me. But the first time that I was there, the three days, I had heard some of her story in, um, in group therapy. And a lot of it was similar to mine. She had experienced very similar things that I had experienced. And I looked at her and she was grabbing herself and kind of rocking and she was just like not there. And I watched her and I thought, if I don't talk about this and if I don't get help, I'm going to end up like her or I'm going to end up dead. And the next therapy that day was art therapy. And the therapist asked us to draw what we were afraid of. And she said, you can put it in your binder and keep it to yourself or you can share. And for the, the first time in six years, I stood up and I had drawn stick figure men. And I said, when I was 18, I was married and he had come, men come to our apartment and rape me and they paid him for it. And I don't know what that means. I just know I'm afraid of men. And it was like, the truth will set you free. That saying is so true in that hospital that I could not leave on my own free will with barbed wire around it. That was my first taste of freedom. And then I started to really do the work and everybody at the hospital stepped in. I had an amazing case manager who he just, he did everything right for me. He helped me heal in so many ways. I had an amazing therapist who took extra time with me. 
I was doing the work. I was going to every therapy class, learning what I experienced was PTSD. And some that was the first time somebody told me what you experienced was human trafficking. And once I had the definition, I was able to start learning about it and healing from it. And um, so in the midst of all this, I eventually got out. We got stationed back to Southern California. And then four months later, my husband left. And that was like back to rock bottom for me. And it was like starting over. I was feeling suicidal again. I felt like I couldn't do this. How am I going to provide for my son? Now I'm a single mom working three jobs, living in an apartment with cockroaches. Like for three years, I did that and it was not fun. And I was trying to heal from my past and now trying to heal from divorce and heartbreak. And in that hospital, they told me to write my story out, which I recommend everybody do. We all have a story. We all go through trauma. We all go through hard times. And I wrote, I wrote it out and I closed it. It was in a journal. And on the top of it, I wrote book, question mark. And I knew I wanted to write this book. I knew I wanted to get it published. And I knew I wanted to work in this field somehow. Um but I didn't really know where to start. There was a place on my family's ranch that opened up. So I quit all my jobs. I packed everything into a horse trailer and I moved here. And long story short, I just started speaking. The book's about to be published. I started training, which led to, you know, next month I'm going to speak at the unit, the United Nations. And I also started doing the work of healing again. And the healing, the work was healing in itself. Working with victims and speaking and sharing my story was incredibly healing. I felt heard. I felt like I could make a difference. And then what I recognized was every relationship that I was going into, whether it be romantic, whether it be a friendship, whatever it was, I was going in with my fists up like this, like, mm, you can get close to me, but not too close because I don't want you to hurt me. I have already been hurt enough. Nobody else will ever hurt me again. And it was causing problems in my life. And I recognized that I had not let go of the past. I thought I had. I'm like, oh, it's past is behind me. Now I get to do something with it. And that's when I really realized I needed to forgive. And, you know, working in therapy and learning about forgiveness, I learned that, you know, forgiveness was for me. It wasn't excusing them of their crimes. It wasn't minimizing it. It didn't even mean that I couldn't be angry about it. It just means that I wanted to live in true freedom. And so I started that process of trying to forgive and it took time. It took some years for me to truly say, but I can now look at, you know, if my trafficker were still alive and if the men that bought and raped me were in front of me, I could look at them and say, I forgive you. And that doesn't mean I invite them over for Sunday dinner. It just means now you don't get any more of me. You've already taken enough. And now I get to go be the mom I want to be and do the work I want to do and be the friend and eventually be the wife that I want to be because I've done this hard work on myself and I'm going to continue. And, you know, I've seen a lot of times sometimes like if there's like a thing on Facebook or any social media where there's a crime committed against a woman, a lot of people will say, oh, that poor girl, her life is ruined. I'm like, that is not true. We are not ruined. We are not, we have everything to offer. We are even that much stronger because we've survived all of that and we have so much to give. So we have to 
that's why survivors have to be a part of the conversation, have to be included in this work because we've lived it and we know what it takes to overcome it. I love it. I love that you can smile. I love that you forgave. Forget if you don't really understand forgiveness is for me until you forgive. Nobody know what that means. <laughs> They'll say forgiveness is for you. You'd be like, what? I don't know. I don't want to forgive. I'm still mad. Allow me to be mad. You know, but I am very proud of you. How did your trafficker die? Because I know people are wondering that. Yeah. Um, so when I was pregnant with my son, um, that's when I found out. And I found out through somebody that we had gone to high school with. And um what I heard, you know, I don't know all the details, but uh, he moved back to Washington where he was from and he uh, started to get onto harder drugs. And he also found out that he had an enlarged heart and the medication from that and the drugs made his heart stop. Very interesting. Yeah. Do you ever feel like, um, do you believe in karma? Or do you just think that he just died? Yeah. <laughs> I just wondering what you think. Because I'm like, his heart stopped. After he broke your heart, you know. <laughs> it's it's funny because over the years, the emotions, I can say, you know, I don't think about it much anymore. But when it first happened, I, it did lead me to go to therapy. Yeah. Like I was like, I don't know how to handle this. And so even though I wasn't being honest with my therapist, I wasn't talking about the trafficking yet. Uh, so it wasn't, therefore it wasn't really working. I was saying, you know, I was married to this man at 18. He did horrible things to me and now he's dead. And I don't know how to navigate this. I don't know how to feel about this. And when I first found out, you know, a lot of, some people have said, you know, did you feel revenge? Did you feel justice? Did you feel like good riddance? Now he'll never find me. Things like that. I felt angry, not because I was sad, not that because I cared about him, I felt angry with myself because now I was like, wow, no one will ever know now. Now it's too late. Um, and I remember picturing everybody, you know, at his funeral, doing what people do at funerals, saying wonderful things about him. And that pissed me off. <laughs> I didn't want, I was like, no, they don't know who he really was and what he did to me. And now he, it's like, he got away with it. I, you know, justice is in one way, but I wanted justice on earth. Like I, ha there's a human trafficking detective that I really like working here in my community with. And I've asked him about that, like the statute of limitations. And I think about, you know, I wasn't ready to like go to court and testify against him right away. But within that time I would have, if I had the right support and the right advocates around me and lawyers that were saying, Hey, this is what you can do. I probably would have because I really wanted that justice. I was angry that he did this to me. He took so much from me. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's just that's there's nothing I can do about it. And so I just have to move on with my life. Yeah. I'm proud of you. It's all about our outlook and our pers perspective. Mm -hmm. Makes a difference. How we view it makes a difference and allow us to be able to go on. And you have definitely done that. We are we coming to an end and it goes by so fast. Like there's so many more questions that I have for you, but I want to know if there's something that you want to share with us before we get ready to close out. Yeah. You know, I think it kind of goes back to, if you see something, say something, you know, if you see that girl that like my situation, you know, I was working normal jobs during the day. I lived in an apartment. They knew I was married to him. 
but there was so many signs that something was happening to me. So just make that call. And also I always say that human kindness, whether it's somebody in society or a professional, you know, a doctor, a, a teacher, a, a cop, when you take the moment, when you're being objectified every day and you're being abused every day and you don't even really feel human anymore and that person shows you kindness and sits there and looks at you in the eye and listens to you, that's really a stepping stone to getting away from that situation. You can really make a difference. They can say, oh, maybe I can get help. Maybe they will help me and start to build that trust. Um, so just, um, and yeah, and educate your kids and keep an eye on them and keep an eye on that technology. Can you tell us about the Jenna Foundation, the Jenna McKay Foundation? Yeah. So, um, you know, I just wanted to be that person that I needed. Um, I grew up around horses. I come from a big horse family. So one of the things when I was thinking of what it would look like, I was like, well, you know, horse therapy. And there's this great certified horse therapist in my community and we provide the funding. And, um, you know, when I hear a victim's story and how heartbreaking it is, and then I see her up on a horse smiling, the, there's nothing better. <laughs> and they're truly healing. You know, you come from a world of fear and not trusting anybody. And now you're building trust with this 2000 pound animal and they have a way about them and calming those nerves, just petting them, cleaning up their manure, you know, like feeding them, riding them and building that relationship um, and that responsibility is amazing. And, um, you know, whatever she needs, if she needs an advocate with her in court, if she needs a ride to work, if she needs um, items for her baby, if she needs housing, how to get back in college, how to get her GED, um, regular therapy, you know, to go sit and share her story with a police officer, whatever, uh, he or she needs, we want to try and provide it. And if we can't, you know, then we'll get them to the support and the um, organization they need. But we've worked with other organizations. You know, I've flown um, down, you know, across California and flown girls to safe houses to get them to the safe house that they need and to the program they need. Um, so if we can do it, we'll provide it. And if not, we'll connect them to the support they need. And where are you located? I'm in uh, Marysville, California. It's about 45 minutes north of Sacramento. We have a lot of viewers from the West Coast, so you never know. And yeah. I think it's important to know that these services are provided. I love horses. When you told me what you do, I was like, man, if somebody ever donate me some horses, <laughs> I'm going to do horse therapy because I already do art therapy. I love art therapy. I love that. Therapy works. It mm -hmm. really does work. And counseling works. And it's important to understand Somebody's journey might not look like yours, but the journey is possible. Yeah. The journey is truly possible. So I, I really love that. Yeah. Um, I do have a quick question. Lona wants to know how prevalent is male sex trafficking? I could tell you we do have males that are sex trafficked as well. They don't often report as much um, as the females do. They also are caught up in this same thing. We have stats, but I will tell you, if we got one, that's enough. The stats to me are not accurate because we look at it from a different way. Like I'm just trying to survive, especially um, boys that are put out of the home because they're gay or identifying as trans or something like that. Um, when they have a different uh, identity or sexual orientation, I find them on the street a lot. 
Yeah, I yeah, I have a hard time with you know I have stats off the top of my head, but it's hard to go off those, so I don't usually like to share them. But you know, I know a few male survivors, and you know, traffickers prey on vulnerabilities. Um, you know, there's this survivor, and he came out to his father at 17 that he was gay. That night he was kicked out and then that night he was trafficked. So he had three vulnerabilities, being a child, being LGBTQ and being homeless. And just within that 48 hours, he was preyed on and trafficked, right? So that's how quick it can happen and those vulnerabilities. And so, yes, it, it may be an underreported, but um, it's not just labor trafficking, it's sex trafficking for men and boys um lgbtq and straight uh, you know everybody can be a trafficker everybody can be a victim and everybody can be a buyer so we need to recognize that and not have these stereotypes in our head of who a victim is and wh who a trafficker is and who a buyer is yeah. and the buyers look like somebody that's standing next to you that's the that's me is one of the biggest problems is as well as the buyer that's yeah all of my all the men that bought and raped me looked like normal people they, they probably had families at home, had normal jobs. They could have been pastors, police officers, judges. They were just normal people in the community. So it, it's anybody. And they like boys. Unfortunately, yeah. they like boys as well. So it right. is a big problem that we have to address. So thank you for answering that as well, Jenna. Um, and I hope that answered your questions, Lana. So... You've made it through this one hour with me. I am truly honored and, and excited that you decided to share your story with me because you could have shared it with anyone else, as you always do. So I know that Hush No More is really, very lucky to have you as a guest. So thank you so very much. Sex trafficking is real. Labor trafficking is real. And you can't look at Jenna and tell. She does not look like what she's been through. She's beautiful. She smiles. And she works very hard. And that that's going totally against the stereotype and the myths that people have. So I really thank you. And um, I honor you for that. Actually, thank you. And thank you for giving survivors a platform and for all the work you do. And I just want to thank everybody for being here. This is how change happens, learning and showing up and getting educated and then making a difference in our own communities. Yeah. Sharing what you learn. Yeah. Sharing what you learn. Sharing the video. It's, it's priceless as well. All right. So... This month is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. We have a lot of events that's coming, going on, coming up. We have next Tuesday is Richard and Kathy Butler. They're going to talk about what happens when you find out that your child is being molested. How do you respond? How do you report it? What do you do? So that is one that I want people to join and listen to because we got to be able to protect our children. On the 27th is Dr. Lori Pitts, and she's going to talk about healing from the inside out. A lot of times we are tore up in the inside and got a smile on the outside. So how can we make sure that we're healed from the inside out? I am looking forward to that. If you are a poet, you do spoken word. If you sing, we would love to have you this Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are doing spoken word. I love it. I love it. I love it. I will be sharing a new piece that I wrote. So I'm excited about that. We'd love for you to join us. You could look at our website at www.hushnomore.org to register. You can also join us if you're in Columbia, South Carolina for Survivor to Warrior. That is with Mr. Lance Adams. He is going to teach us how to protect ourselves. If you want to fight back, let's get you the tools to be able to fight back. And we're going to also share that live Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. But join us if you're in South Carolina. 
On Sunday, we are doing the Hush No More documentary screening that will share the stories of survivors of the Hush topics. I am truly honored to share their story every time we do a screening. Grab your popcorn. It is family friendly just to learn how you can get through this process and to be able to recognize some different signs. So that is Sunday. Then on April 24th, we are doing a child sexual abuse forum where we will have guests that are going to be talking about internet safety, cyber awareness, how to protect your children from traffickers, from abusers, from those people that pray through text messages and the internet. How can you make a difference for your children? I'm really honored to be able to do that. The screening time is 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can register for all of our events online at hushnomore.org. You can reach out to us at 1-888-285-2161. We are here for you to listen. If you want to share your story, if you just need resources, please contact us. It does not matter if you are a parent. I have parents calling me all the time. Parents can reach out to me because I have information that might be valuable for your children. So I look forward to just continuing being a blessing, to being able to raise awareness. I truly believe that more awareness we have and the more knowledge we have leads to prevention. So share this video, talk to people about it in your community. Jenna has an amazing story that people don't want to talk about sex trafficking and how horrible it is and that it really is rape. And how can rape happen in your marriage? It's possible. So thank you again, Jenna. I truly appreciate you and honor you. Thank you. Thank you so much.